Everyone, welcome to another edition of Founder Wisdom Podcast, future edition, not so far future edition. Today we have Henry Gordon Smith. He is founder CEO at Agritecture and a bunch of other companies he founded in the past. He's a board member at a couple of orgs as well. We're going to talk about all of that. He's an interesting dude altogether. So Henry, welcome to the pod. Can you introduce yourself briefly? Yeah, thanks for having me, Charles. And hi, everyone. I'm Henry. I started a company called Agritecture in 2011, and we provide global services for climate smart agriculture, like greenhouses and vertical farms and rooftop farms. And we also provide amazing content on our blog about the future of this type of agriculture. And we recently launched our first software product, the world's first farm planning software. It's so great to be here. Interesting background you have. So where to start, man? You went like all over the world. Uh, you started studying in British Columbia, right? Yeah, well, I think I, it, I sound American, right? Uh, based on my accent, accent or Canadian, you could say, but my mother's Czech, my father's British. Okay. My dad's a civil engineer. So we moved around a lot. I was born in Hong Kong. I grew up in Hong Kong till I was six, uh, moved okay. to Tokyo, lived there till I was 10, uh, Germany until I was 12, uh, Czech Republic till I was 16. And then Moscow, Russia is where I graduated high school. And then I went to the University of British Columbia uh, to study uh, political science for my undergraduate degree. Went to Toronto for a few years to study food security and urban agriculture. And then I moved to New York, the Big Apple, with big dreams of being a, an urban farming leader and working in sustainability. And I got my master's there at Columbia University and started this business, Agritecture. So you look very entrepreneurial. Why? why um vertical farming why did that caught your attention well you know i wasn't a really business-minded person i really didn't grow up uh thinking i'd be an entrepreneur um i had a little bit of entrepreneurial spirit as a young person i started like you know i was always trying to solve problems but i didn't understand business i wasn't like a money finance math kind of guy by any means mm-hmm. um but you know, as I became aware of climate change, I started to really feel like I needed to make a difference related to climate change. I felt like it was my responsibility to respond to it. And I was really disappointed by the internships I did in the public sector and my lack of faith that the public sector could solve these problems. And I started to feel like business would be a better way to respond and help us adapt to and mitigate climate change. So as I spoke to certain successful business people I knew, They said, you know, business is about solving a gap, filling that gap better than anyone else. And so you need to think about what that gap is and you need to fill it better than anyone else. And it needs to be something ideally that you're interested in. So whether it's whatever, better beanbags, a better watch, a better financial product, a better podcast, you know, you can choose what you want. But for me, I wanted it to be an environmental problem. So I started three blogs because I had experienced blogging uh, as a college student. And the blogs covered different topics of sustainability. And my objective was to test the market to see which blog was most appealing to the audiences and also which one I liked the most working on and producing content on. And Agritecture was one of those blogs. So the other two were, one was about water, one was about architecture uh, and urban planning. And Agritecture was one of those blogs. And that's how I started shifting into understanding and becoming an expert in vertical farming through all that research and all that blogging. You started out as a finance blogger. You mentioned that you didn't like numbers and w- wasn't like the business-minded person. So why why was that and what happened there? Yeah, I mean, that was really funny, right? So I was, I was uh, 
in, in college and I saw a, an advertisement on Facebook that was, you know, a competition to be a blogger for Royal Bank of Canada, which is, you know, the biggest bank in Canada. Yeah. And so I, I, I had to submit a video about, you know, why your financial life sucks. And so I made this video with my friends, I submitted it and I won. And so they gave me this job and they trained me in being a blogger, but I, I didn't know anything about finance. So I learned about the products that RBC had, but my job wasn't really so much doing anything finance related. It was about helping the audience understand what credit card you should choose. Should you get a mortgage with your parents? You know, what kind of debt exists? How should you think about investing, you know, in your twenties? Uh, so these were all questions that I didn't have answers to, but I got access to RBC to ask these questions. And then I would compose written blog posts and video blog posts to help millennials uh, get accustomed to RBC's brand and product because RBC had pretty bad traction with millennials back then. So this was a strategy for them to engage. So I was a finance blogger, but I, you know, I didn't know anything about finance. Yeah, that was that, that's interesting but it's always a good strategy to learn about stuff you don't know you throw yourself in these deep waters and you try to see if you sink or swim and most of the time as resourceful entrepreneurial folks we just swim and actually go for an ultra swim and do the the whole island of britain like uh, ross uh, did uh, not so long ago so interesting background to say the least uh, now let's talk a bit more about vertical farm farming what is it and what problems the world facing is like this whole climate change hoax or like what's happening in that world and how is uh, vertical farming solving that? Well, in the face of increased population, um, uh, changing climate and also shocks in the system like pandemics and conflicts, um, wars, etc., cetera, uh, we really are facing a lot of fragility in our food system globally. Um, although we produce enough food to feed everyone, the way we produce food um, results in a lot of waste. 40% of food is wasted at the farm level. It travels huge distances. The quality of the food is reduced. Uh, most of our food is sprayed with chemicals and pesticides. It's uh, produced for transportation versus for consumption. 70% of our limited fresh water is used in agriculture and we're running out of arable land. Just to name a few of the, you know, incredible challenges we face in agriculture. So there's many different solutions to many different types of agriculture, everything from alternative proteins to uh, ways to use water more responsibly outdoors to satellite and AI technologies. But one that really interested me was bringing the food production closer to the consumer, which is urban agriculture. And it's nothing new. It's something we've been doing for as old as time, right? We used to grow food where we lived all the time. But in a sort of more modern high-tech society where uh, density is higher, where people value space and real estate more, we need to go vertical. We need to either put these farms on rooftops, which is a rooftop farm, or we need to put them in unused spaces like warehouses, basements, uh, maybe distribution centers near the city. And that's where vertical farming comes in. So vertical farming as a modern phenomenon was promoted by Dr. Dixon de Pommier, author of The Vertical Farm. He was my mentor and advisor at Columbia University. And you know he really proposed basically these vertical towers in cities that would provide ecosystem services as well as produce food. Since then, that book in 2010 was published. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of vertical farming companies uh, have raised uh, billions of dollars 
and, and are expanding across the world. And what they do is they essentially grow indoors in stacked levels of cultivation. You have no sunlight, so there's artificial light to grow the plants. You have no soil, so it's recirculating hydroponic systems, which use 70 to 90% less water typically. And you have no pesticides and you require no arable land. So again, going back to those problems I mentioned, vertical farming starts to tackle some of them. Now, vertical farming is not perfect. We can talk about some of the weaknesses in it, like high carbon footprint if the energy is sourced from non-renewable sources mm. and limited crops. But it's a very sexy, hot topic right now um, that's getting a lot of attention, raising a lot of money. And um, yeah, I happen to be one of the global experts in it. Very cool. Very nice place to be. Um, for the high carbon footprint, can we just solve that with solar panels on top, being on top of buildings? I guess it's a bit more complicated than that. And then the lamps, the, the lighting, um, do they consume a lot of energy, generally speaking? So the lamps used in these farms, uh, which are a significant part because you're replacing the sun to produce all of the photosynthetic needs of the plants. So it's really a lot. You're talking about yeah. you know, tens of thousands of lights in farms. Um, they produce heat. They're more efficient because they're LEDs, but they do produce some heat because of the, the amount of them. So then you need climate control to cool that down. So that's really where the energy comes from is not just the lighting, but also the heat that the lights generate and the cooling required for that. Um, if you took a vertical farm, a typical vertical farm, again, there's a lot of different kinds, but a typical warehouse vertical farm, let's say, I don't know, four or five levels of cultivation of lights, uh, maybe this building is 10,000 square feet in footprint, you know, five levels high, and you covered the whole rooftop and solar panels, you wouldn't even get to 10% of the wow. energy needs for the building. Um, so then you start to think, oh, what if I put solar panels next to it? Well, but then what's the point of saving space and going vertical if you're taking up space for solar panels, True. right? The, the whole the whole reason is saving space. So there's a big problem around that. These are more like data centers and the amount of energy they consume. They're very, they're always running. The lights run for 18 hours a day. So they're very, very heavy on energy. Okay. So the, instead there needs to be more creativity about um, storing energy on site and allowing renewable energy to power them from different sources. Uh, for example, in Quebec, where you are, I believe, there's a lot of hydro, hydro energy. So, yeah. uh, you know, the energy there is actually quite sustainable. So a vertical farm there is not necessarily you know, bad for the environment. It might be an energy hog, but it's actually uh, could be arguably uh, sustainable, especially because you import a lot of food uh, to, to Quebec in the wintertime. So you know, it's really about context and placement. And that actually leads into not only our consulting services and what we do to help people understand how much energy these farms consume, but also our software where you can like very quickly estimate what the energy demand would be. So you know, sort of ideas like that that are cool, like putting solar panels on it, you can sort of very quickly calculate why that wouldn't work and start to actually design and solve problems to get to a profitable um, and, and more efficient farm. So what does your software do exactly? I'm really excited because our software is like, for me, it's a full circle experience as an entrepreneur. It goes back to the early days when I wanted to design these farms, uh, like so many people do. I wanted to know, what can I grow? How much can I grow? Can I power it by solar? You know, how much water am I going to use? How many jobs am I going to create? And because it was so new, that data didn't exist. Like you had to go to events and hear from different experts. And like, I had an archive of all the data. I had to call lighting companies and they'd say, yeah, with our lights, this is what you can do. But I can't tell you what generally happens. Um, and by the way, you have to buy our lights. <laughs> so, you know, it was a very bad process. And so then the consulting business was sort of a premium way to answer those questions. We gather data, we sell that data through feasibility studies and design. But over time, I realized that 
consulting isn't for everyone and it's not as scalable uh, for the impact I wanna make. So Agriculture Designer lets you input the location of any greenhouse or vertical farm, choose from 75 of the most popular crops, get the yield estimates, energy estimates, job estimates, uh, water estimates, <clears throat> excuse me, all in a matter of minutes online. Budget also. Very beautiful timeline. Budget. <laughs> timeline, budget. You can then connect with financing and suppliers. Basically, you can plan these farms completely online now. So cool. uh, it's really like 10 times, maybe 100 times cheaper and 100 times faster um, than, than even what we do on the consulting side. Obviously, consulting is high touch and a different experience. But I love the fact that our users on the software have so much individual power to be designers and to be business planners um, in the comfort of their home or their office or with their team. Yeah, that's that's so cool. How long did it take you to deploy a beta version of the software? So we started, uh, we had the idea in early 2020, uh, sort of floating around and then maybe 2019. And then when the pandemic hit, we just accelerated it. So we started really pushing it um, and we launched it in beta in like May of 2020. So I would say to build the beta took us six months. Um, and then we've been still running beta like ever since then. And we're just finished our seed round. And now we're moving out to sort of having the, the main product for the first time, probably relaunching in 2023. That's interesting. I thought it was a bootstrap. So how much did you raise for a seed and uh, how much are you going for for uh, Series A? Well, I haven't decided on my Series A yet. We just finished our seed round. We raised a million dollars, and um, and so that's that just completed a couple of weeks ago. Hey, and I'm still not convinced about like urban farming. Say that I would have the choice to, if I would want to uh, take advantage of the business side of things. That is, uh, between a, a farm that let's say is located on the south shore of Montreal, probably around where I am right now, and building some something in a tower. Um, what are the economics of both and why, why is urban farming more interesting for me as a businessman uh, than uh, normal farming? Well, normal farming is definitely normal farming. Traditional farming, there's a lot of different kinds, but let's say outdoor field agriculture is, is, is still interesting to some. But one of the problems is, is that you're not a specialty product in many cases. Um, you're far from the consumer. So the value of your product is really limited to the price, okay. right? It's, it's it become a commodity, right? You're growing corn, wheat, soy, um, various things like that. You can be maybe an organic specialty farm, but if it's too far away from the city, you know, the additional added value of your product isn't there. Okay. If I'm an urban farm, I have a lot of other things I can do. I can, uh, if I'm a vertical farm, I can produce a totally different product and deliver it to customers in a totally different way and brand in a totally different way, which creates hmm. new ways to create a better margins, uh, better opportunities. If I'm a vertical farm, I also grow year round while outdoor farms are typically seasonal and subject to the seasons. So that also changes uh, the way you hire people, the, the revenue you make, your cash flow, all those things. Now an urban farm doesn't have to be vertical. It can be a soil-based one, but even then I have other opportunities like making it an amenity. I can place my urban farm at a real estate development and I suddenly have all these customers that are gonna to subscribe to my box of greens and fruits and vegetables. I can host tours, I can host workshops and I can supplement my income and diversify it far beyond that. I also can get really exciting press. Um, I can get video tours, I can get sponsorships. I, there's a lot of things I can do that a traditional farm can't. Okay. During the pandemic, 
during the pandemic, like a lot of traditional farms suffered as supermarkets started to reduce uh, you know, what they were selling. A lot of urban farms also suffered because restaurants shut down. So there's pros and cons when there's shocks in the system. But what we noticed is that the urban farms were able to adapt to direct to consumer sales. They started delivering directly to people's buildings and homes. Traditional farms can't do that. You know, outdoor farms can't really effectively deliver across the last mile in the city where urban farms have an opportunity to do that. Urban farms also can be more productive per square foot. Uh, think about it like this. If you're in Tokyo and you have an apartment versus an apartment in, in LA, yeah. you're going to maximize your space use in Tokyo more uh, because you have less space and it's more expensive. So you start to be creative about where you put your shelving and where you put your stuff and how you run it. Same thing with a farm. If you have less space, data suggests you actually start to become more productive per square foot and creative with your space. Um, and that's one advantage that urban farmers have. But for the long term, these two groups need to work together, right? The food system needs both outdoor traditional farmers and urban farmers. And for an entrepreneur or a potential farmer, you need to think about what's the experience you want? Do you want to live away from the city, away from the people? And do you want to focus just on production? Or do you want to be in the city and think more about technology and sales and marketing and brand? It's up to you. You know, the choice is yours. True that. Like, I think that's the main advantage is that you're near your customers. You live their reality while as a farmer, you're, you're so, you live a reality that is so different, so much different from your customers. And you're another big disadvantage I can see from being a farmer away from the city is the Wi-Fi speed, you know, so that the technology is not like fully catching up as well. You're not near uh, the equipment you need to buy and so forth. So I guess these are all advantages. What do you think? Investors. Yeah, investors right. as well. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm just curious about one of the first points you mentioned. You mentioned that I could grow a, a more a different variety of, um, let's say, crops. Um, and my understanding is that I have more control over the, the nutrients and um, everything that I don't necessarily have control over in a non-controlled environment, right? So I can grow like papayas if I want. Uh, while these only grow in Mexico, uh, last time I checked, or in tropical environments, is that what you're saying? It's a bit more complicated than that. So you try to think about a spectrum of like low tech to high tech. Yeah. High tech is like a completely controlled, you know, automated vertical farm. Yeah. In the middle is like a greenhouse. I've got some sunlight, but I can control the temperature. And on the low end is an outdoor open field. Yeah. So on the open field, you've got free sunlight and you locate it in a place that has a climate that's great for papayas and you can grow and, you know, you can grow a lot of papayas at probably a low cost. Your concerns are going to be labor related and water related for that in the future. Um, but in the end, you're going to be able to grow a pretty cheap product because the climate where you're locating that papayas is, you know, that's growing for that reason in that area. So that's what you're focused on. On the greenhouse, you can actually start to grow it in other areas. Um, you know, it, it's going to be a more expensive product to grow because you're using technology. You control the environment for that. Um, they're not commonly grown in greenhouses, but for the sake of this exercise, you could, in theory, grow it in a greenhouse. And you can start to have more control on it. You can use much less water to grow those papayas. You can adapt what your what nutrients you're giving to each individual papaya plant. Um, you can actually uh, adjust when it's gonna be harvested because you can even delay um, the harvest period based on the temperature or light or various strategies you might have in there. And you can have all these sensors that tell you what the papaya is going through so you can optimize and build a database for future improvement. So that's pretty cool. 
On the vertical farm, you're not gonna be able to commercially grow a papaya today because you have to have so much light and energy and time that it wouldn't make sense from a cash perspective, but you can grow it uh, technically. Um, you could grow it uh, technically for research purposes or just if you wanted to grow one on your own. Um, but in that case, you're gonna have ultimate control. You're gonna, you're gonna have maximum control. You're gonna actually be able to, to, to control how fast it grows to some extent, but even like change things like leaf size and color and what kind of nutritional value it has inside of the plant. Um, so, you know, that's what a lot of the research at NASA uh, looks at is what they can grow uh, in space, what kind of crops they can grow completely artificially in space, that sort of vertical farming in a very high-end, high-tech controlled way. But vertical yeah. farming today commercially tends to be fast, you know, fast growing crops that don't require too much space, like leafy greens and maybe moving into some berries and, and yeah. different herbs and saffron and things like that. I definitely would grow purple papayas higher in, in antioxidants yeah. if I would be in that game. Um, but also, I, I think uh, there is a, a very strong market for luxury type of food and high end uh, type sure. of food, you know, and in that segment, since you have so much control. So you can have control on the nutrients and and these types of things, you know, for, for biohackers like me that, uh, you know, might be obsessed with the, the antioxidant in a, a coffee bean, for example. I'm also curious um, about, you know, the, the future that you see in your field. How far away are we from, you know, robots fully cutting the, the crops and then putting them into baskets and a fully automated kind of supply chain? Then it drops in the condo and then people pick up their things and then the basket goes up. You know, how far are we from that? Um, cyberpunk reality. Yeah, I think on your point before about biohacking and like personalized nutrition, I think that's a huge part of where vertical farming will go. Um, there are vertical farms that are actually growing for uh, pharmaceutical companies, for cosmetics. Um, and I think that's really showing uh, that the value can go beyond food, but into these ingredients and control. There's vertical farms growing like specialty plants and trees that have never been grown before to get them out back into nature. Really cool stuff happening behind the scenes. Uh, research around uh, vaccines, et cetera. Mm. Um, automation at the farm level is pretty available, to be honest. I've been surprised, but like, for example, there's strawberry picking robots, there's apple picking robots, there's a lot of uh, robotics that's possible. The problem is that the capital needed for them is very um, difficult for farmers to justify. And, and traditional farmers are pretty uh, you know, suspicious of new technologies because they've sort of been sold new tech so many different times. And, and they have so many challenges and their margins are small, like typical margins in agriculture outdoors are three to 6%. So like the risk is so high for them. So new leasing models around that would be needed to sort of get it going. But you know, technically I think you could have a fully, um, relatively fully automated farm from a harvesting perspective, um, planting even, there's certain aspects of that that have been automated, but a fully automated value chain of your papaya from field to fork um, I don't know. I think that technically um, it's within the next five years. Economically, I don't think that's going to make sense for a, a lot longer, 10 to 15 years, maybe more, um, because, you know, papayas, unfortunately, are typically grown by low cost labor in developing countries. So mm. that still tends to be pretty cheap relative to robots. But technically, I think you could I think you could do that. Um, automation on the like home level. I don't know. A lot of the restaurant robots suck. A lot of the kitchen robots are pretty weak, um, but th those will those will get resolved in the next five years. I would say there's a lot of work getting done there.
Interesting. I want to finish this off by talking about just your, your personal life as a digital nomad and founder. How has that played for you? Because we're kind of in the future as nomads traveling here and there. Uh, do you think it's a sustainable lifestyle? How, how has that played for you so far? Well, okay. So I was, um, I had an apartment in New York and I traveled maybe 50% of the time for business. Uh, I got, I was on a business trip in Oman and in March, 22, the city, the country went into lockdown and I got yeah. stuck in Oman. No so I basically canceled my apartment in New York because I was paying this rent and I couldn't get out. And I was in yeah. Oman for four months. Wow. So after I got out and I came to the Czech Republic to visit my parents after not seeing them so long and whatever, I started to ask myself, do I really need an apartment? I mean, I was yeah. living out of a suitcase for four months. I had my computer. I was doing my work. There was a part that was really freeing to just not having stuff, you know, and not having to take care of stuff you know and and worry about bringing stuff and packing stuff and all of that so i just really liked it and then for me because my business is so focused on people and visiting farms and new technologies and speaking at events it started to become really helpful for me because i could say yes to more things you know i used to say no to things because oh i'm back in new york at that time so it doesn't make sense to go to this place yeah. and i started to transform the way i thought about travel from oh i'm going here and then i'm coming back to I'm going here and I'm sort of gonna explore this region for a while. So instead of going to Sydney for a four day event, I go to Sydney, then I go to Melbourne, then I go to Auckland and I sort of experience Australia, New Zealand region for a month, which in some ways is actually a better way to reduce your carbon footprint than flying all the way back to this area and also better for your health because I, I was very, you know, in 2019, I had 55 flights, more than one a week was out of control yeah so you know that that was not a good feeling so uh, that's why i did it so i've been doing it two and a half years now um i'd say the pros are again all the things i mentioned so many more opportunities um so many exciting places to see um I've, i haven't vacuumed in two and a half years i love that um you know so so all of that I, i'd say the downsides are it's difficult to have a relationship you know i i, I had a nomad partner that traveled the world with me um, but then that relationship fell apart and now it's been difficult to sort of find another relationship. So it can get lonely. And I think as you get older, you sort of, you know, do want to settle down somewhere. Yeah. So I don't think I'll do this forever. Um, but, uh, for now it's, it's a good place for me. One last question. If you have any advice for founders out there, what would it be? Well, I, I love I love the advice of one of our investors and one of my mentors, Esther Dyson, who's a successful uh, tech investor, and she you know says always make new mistakes. And you hear founders talk about this a lot, but you know try to embrace the failure, but make sure you're learning from it and not making the same mistakes. And it's it's really so cliche, but so important. You have to take risks, you have to make mistakes, but the worst thing you can do is repeat the old mistakes because it has a lot of cost. And especially as you start to have a team, if they see you repeating mistakes, it affects morale and, and it affects the company a lot more too. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know, that's the simplest one I would say. Um, and you know, just try to get enough sleep. <laughs> <laughs> two, two very good ones. And yeah, for the, the first one, I think it's putting your ego on the side and just experiment, experimenting more, you know, like us humans where we put um, emotions ahead of everything, but it's in the end, it's a numbers game, you know? So put your little ego aside and uh, deploy more tests, you know, 
one per day if you can. And then yes, remember uh, your mistakes and finally sleep. <laughs> I, I try to sleep in the two digits. That might surprise a lot of people. Wow. But yeah, my brain is such like, it's such a hyperactive and I do like high, right. tough uh, endurance events um, type of sport. So yeah, I need that sleep and yeah, founders need to sleep more. So Hey, Henry, thank you so much for all the lessons you've driven in. And yeah, you've kind of schooled us on uh, vertical farming, lots of lessons to drive home here. Where can people find out more about you? Yeah, you can find me on Instagram or Twitter at The Agritect, or you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm very active, almost at 20,000 followers. So help me get there. Henry Gordon Smith, uh, feel free to reach out. All right. Thank you, my man. Have a good day.